Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. Or you can go straight to the blog at blog.speculist.com. On The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about the future. We articulate an unusual view of the future, and we tell the straight scoop about the future, which is that our world isn't necessarily going to hell in a handbasket or by any other means, but that in fact it's getting better all the time. And not only that, but that we stand on the brink of an incredibly bright future. And if we play our cards right, it's going to be a future that most of us haven't even imagined or even dared hope for. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio, as always, is my co-blogger, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Phil. How are you? I'm super fantastic. How are you doing? Man, I'm excellent. Yeah, haven't had a good good weekend. Took the kids to a movie, and uh, yeah, it's just been it's been one of those uh, lazy ones, and and that's kind of nice every now and then. That's good. Well, b- before the program started, I was just complaining about it. I I think I I overdid it on the yard work this weekend myself. So um, I think more movies, less yard work would have been a good thing. Well, if you if you you know, you know doze off into a you know you start taking a snooze in the middle of the program, I guess I'll. Uh, I'll fill in, but uh... just speak loudly. No, just you know, <laughs> shout or something like that. That'll get me right back. On. We've also got Michael Darling on the line. Hey, Michael. Good evening, Mr. Chad Host. How are you? I'm uh, living the living the short dream, the nap dream. Uh, the, okay, well, Stephen, I guess is going to be our awake guy for the evening for sure. So, uh, <laughs> you, you said that you went to uh, went to a movie, uh, took the kids to a movie. Uh, let's hear about it. Well, I went to uh, the new Narnia movie. That, that's uh, the uh, Prince Caspian. Uh, Prince Caspian, yes. Yeah, it's follow-up to Line the Witch in the Wardrobe. This is uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. And uh, I thought it was a very good movie. I, I found it more exciting and, and a more interesting movie, really, than the uh, than the original. And that's unusual for sequels. You know, usually the sequel's a bit of a letdown. This was, this was good. I thought it was... Uh, I, I thought the battle scenes were uh, there. Was, there was a, a couple of ingenious plot devices, something I'd never seen done, or even suggested in a battle before. Uh, what took place in this battle, and I don't want to give it away. I, um, you know, it's too it's too big of a spoiler. So, but it's it just you know, take it from me. Uh, it's a battle you'll want to see. Okay. Well, I I got to see that uh, movie last week. I enjoyed it very much too. Uh, actually, I liked it more than I liked. We were talking last week about. The new Indiana Jones film. I, I um, and I think a lot of this has to do with expectation. I, I was expecting great, great things from Indiana Jones. Got a pretty good movie, so uh, you know that wasn't quite there for me. I was not expecting all that much from Prince Caspian. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't think it was going to be that great. And I'll tell you why is because that was always I thought maybe the slowest book in the whole Narnia series. It really? Was, it was not the yeah. It was not the one that uh, it. it to me, it always felt like it was mostly set up, and you get to uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and then some of those later books. Uh, you know, the, the the pace is a lot better, and the, the story flows along a lot better. So I was I was really impressed with how they translated that movie under the screen and made it. Uh, I, I thought made it a really compelling story. I, it made me really make made me want to go back and read the book, and and maybe appreciate it a little more than I did uh, last time I read it. So. Yeah, I've got I've, I've got the book on my shelf. Uh, I mean, it's it's the all, it's an all inclusive volume that has all all the stories in it, and uh, I I need to uh, I need to go through it again. I haven't read it. Now, are those are good. they in the correct the correct order or are yeah, they yeah. in the chronological order? They are in chronological order, meaning that the last book published is the first book in the uh, in the volume. Oh, okay. Okay. Because the last book he published was uh, what was the the uh, magician's nephew was the last right. book that C.S. Lewis published uh, in the Narnia series, but chronologically it was first. It tells the beginning of Narnia. So now exactly. they publish the books in that order, but they're making the movies in the order that he published the books, which I think is uh, to me that's the correct order because that's the order I read them in. And, uh, I'm not I'm not sure how that they would uh, translate uh, the magician's nephew. That would be a difficult one. Um, there's some things about that. Um, well, it, novel. it would. I, I would. I would have thought that any of these movies, uh, books, would have been tough to make to, to make movies out of. They, they've definitely followed some of the uh, 
Lord of the Rings just in terms of the scope and the scale of them. You know, uh, when, when I read those books, I never pictured things being as big and grand as they are in in, in these movies. But they're very true to the uh, very true to the characters. And I think uh, one of the reviews I read, they said, was they they really got Aslan right this time. You know, he yeah. showed up just about as much as he needed to, and the things he said were the things you wanted him to say. You know, he he was playing the role that. Uh, that you would want him to play, but not everyone agrees with that. I read the uh, uh, on the official Roger Ebert website a review by a guy named Jim Emerson, and uh, he had uh, he had two major complaints with uh, with Prince Caspian. One of them was he said that the problem with the uh, with the Narnia stories is that they all, by definition, are going to have this Deus ex machina ending, where you know quite literally God steps in and saves the day at the end. And he said, so how can you have any any real dramatic tension when you when you always know that's going to happen. And uh, well, I, I thought that, that well, in, in this and that's why I like this movie better. Uh, you know, in the in the first movie, I mean, it was quite literally all Aslan. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, the the kids were really too too young to be believable warriors. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so Aslan, when he's, you know, when he saves the day, uh, he really, I mean, he, he he really saved the day. But in this movie, he he, you know, he sh- he kind of showed up at the end, and I, I a little bit. But I mean, it's uh, the kids are more believable. Uh, the actors they got playing uh, these roles are more believable as warriors, and uh, they came across well. And uh, and the lion uh, didn't. You know, didn't steal yeah. the thunder. You know, he didn't steal the show from him. That's for sure. Although, to me, I just think the, the that that argument is a little silly. For one thing, Aslan always follows the rules in Narnia, so that uh, even in the first movie, he's subject to deep magic from before the uh, beginning of time. And in this movie, he says, "Well, I can't do things twice the same way." And I, I won't say more than that. But things could have worked one way, or they could have worked another way. But um, he he's not he's not a guaranteed show there at the end. Except for the fact that you know it's going to have a happy ending, and and that's the part that uh, that got me wondering about this uh, Jim Emerson. I mean, do you suppose he goes into a Spider-Man movie and sits down and goes, "Now this film has dramatic integrity because Peter Parker could really die, and this could really be the end of all Spider-Man, right?" I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like you know it's going to work. Ditto James right? Bond, or you know, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. I, to me, to me, Indiana I Jones. You know, if if you've seen the Indiana Jones Chronicles, you know that he lives to be, you know, 102 years old. So right. yeah. <laughs> it's going to work out. Yeah. yeah so but, but, I'm going. Here's sorry. the other part. Here's the other part from the review. This this is the part that got my attention. Okay, and I'm going to read this quote. He says, "The larger question remains: Why really do the Narnians need some anti-democratic?" monarchy-loving European son of Adam to lead them, to protect them, to fulfill their prophecies. There's an obvious candidate for the job here, a towering black centaur named Glenstorm, Cornell St. John, possessed of a noble bearing unsurpassed in Narnia. So first, let me just say that I thought Glenstorm was extremely cool. All right, so the, not, not to take anything away from him or any of the centaurs. I thought the centaurs really rocked, and, and the minotaurs were looking pretty good in the, in the movie, too. But um, One of the most heroic uh, acts in the movie uh, was done by the, a monitor. Uh, that I, I without thought saying that, what? Yeah, not spoiling it, but yes. Yeah, um, it was very cool, and uh, you, you just need to see the movie. So, but you know, <laughs> I just I love this whole anti-democratic. You know, bringing the Europeans in to rule over the Narnians. Okay, I, I just one thing I need to point out is I don't care if he's black or if a black actor played him. Okay, a centaur is as European as any white guy. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. That, that, that's where they that's where they were invented. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, one don't give me that. But but the other part is he's you know he 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 starts going down this path about you know trying to do this sort of uh, what what do you call that uh, literary criticism where they where they tear things apart. I can't think of the word for it. But uh, 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 you know, making this political case about. Uh, uh, about Prince Caspian, um, and what cracks me up is when you start going all PC on the Narnia universe. I'm like, dude, you're one book early, okay? Wait till book three, uh, and uh, Eustace will show up and say all the things you're worried about, right? Because that that kid comes in and he gives this completely PC critique of Narnia when he arrives, right? Right down to uh, right down to the fact that uh, he can't stand Reepicheep because he thinks talking animals are sentimental, right? Yeah. So I. I, I <laughs> 
just just the idea that that he's laying something new on uh, uh, on Narnia by criticizing it from that standpoint, I think is. Uh, is is kind of funny. Uh, uh, anyway, I think that's a it's a review that Eustace would have enjoyed very much. Well, um, and uh, I look it, forward it, to that third movie. Yeah, C.S. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was a very smart guy, and there's not not too many aspects of his world that he didn't think about at some point and deal with. So yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah, I, you know the thing is if 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 they don't ha- if they don't need. Uh, a, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve to come and be king or queen in Narnia, you lose the whole idea of you know regular English kids get to go be kings and queens in Narnia. That's the whole fairy tale story for crying out loud. I don't really think there was, <laughs> yeah. there was you know there, there was any deep political subversive racist thing going on there. That was just the story he wanted to tell. So anyway, that was my he was telling a, he was telling a story for kids in you know basically in the neighborhood, and that was right. British kids of that of that era. Yeah. But, but moving quickly on from Narnia, we've, I, I, I've now made us spend more time on this than I thought because what, uh, the other thing we wanted to get to was uh, to note a few, unfortunately, uh, celebrity uh, deaths that have occurred in the past uh, past week to week and a half. Uh, there's this saying that celebrity deaths occur in threes, or it seems to me that you notice them in threes. And uh, I had heard, uh, I guess about a week ago, that, or maybe just a few days ago, that Sidney Pollack had died. And yeah. uh, I'm sure everyone's familiar with, you know, brilliant actor and director and seemed like a really good guy, too, Sidney Pollack. So we were sorry to hear that uh, he had passed. And then uh, Harvey Corman, who um, guys my age, maybe and a little older, will remember as a comedian on the Carol Burnett show, but who's probably best remembered for his role as a uh, uh, role in Blazing Saddles as Hedy Lamar. That's Hedley. <laughs> that, was, that was a little slow, but uh, we'll take it. We, we didn't have an MP3. Uh, actually, you got you got to be a little more nasal on that. That's Headley. Okay. But anyway, very very sorry to hear about uh, both uh, Sidney Pollack and Harvey Corman. And uh, then there was a third celebrity death to round it out. And uh, Stephen, you got the scoop on that one. Well, it's a name you're not going to recognize, more than likely. Um, the name well, is I think, El- I, I think fast forward radio listeners might might. There, there's a chance as a fast forward radio listener that you'll know this. This is a, uh, this one has some geek cred. Um, Alexander Courage is the man's name. Uh, he is he passed away this week. Uh, he was a composer uh, for. Um, uh, the TV show themes and, mo- and some movie themes, and uh, there's one particular theme that he is will forever be known for, and I'm going to play it. All right. Star Trek opening theme, and also the clo- you know the closing themes, and most of the themes throughout the entire uh, running of the show. Uh, of course, the opening theme is the one that got uh, reworked a jillion times in all the movies and in most of the television series uh, that have followed the original series has and have employed that theme in some way at some point. And so, um, anyway, that's Alexander Courage, and uh, he uh, he gave us some music that's. Uh, I think iconic, if music can be iconic. It is absolutely iconic. I couldn't agree more. So uh, rest in peace, Alexander Courage. Thank you for your contribution to our world. Uh, that's, a, that's a you know significant little piece of music there. You hear that and you go, boy, that really takes me back in a lot of different ways. That, uh, that music has, uh, has had a certain amount of influence on me, and that kind of takes us to our uh, main topic of the evening. Uh, we're going to be talking tonight about what I call the speculist essentials. And these are the key influences, the, the things that, that uh, have most influenced us in developing what is a, a pretty unique or at least very unusual outlook that, that we have on the future. So I thought it would be fun to 
break this down into a few categories and talk and and see if we could talk through the list. And as we were talking about this this morning, Stephen, it occurred to us that really there would be no time to do any more than each of us to contribute one in each of these categories if we were going to try to make it fit into a into a regular show. Right, right. It's just you know we could we could spend an, uh, a whole show on any one of these categories if if we on uh, any one of them absolutely. If we didn't exercise and, and a little discipline. Yeah, and or, or try. You know, we always try. Uh, the, the the categories that I that I listed were uh, a person, an event, a website, a nonfiction book, a fiction book, and a me- movie or a TV show. So we're going to work through that list, I think, in reverse order, and we'll end with uh, who is the person who has been the biggest influence on each of us as as speculists. And we go through the list, uh, Michael. If uh, if our if our listeners also have some contributions to the list, we'd like to we'd like to hear about those. Fair enough, and I'll feel free to make stuff up. Okay, <laughs> yeah, do, you know, clearly, cause, contribute yeah, however, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, anything you say, we're going to believe. And also, if you'd like to call us and uh, share your uh, items uh, on the Speculist Essentials list, you can. our phone lines are open, you can call us at 347-215-8972. So let's start with the movie or TV show that you have found most Influential uh, in in shaping your uh, shaping your thinking. And Stephen, I'll let I'll let you kick this off. Well, a while back I did a sci-fi movie countdown that I put on the uh, uh, on the speculist. It was you know basically my list of you know what are the best science fiction movies of all time. Number one, and at the top of that list was Blade Runner. I still think it's the finest science fiction movie, but I'm not going to say that it's the one that's been most influential on me as a speculist. Um. The reason being, it's it's uh, you know it it has some it has some meat to it. Blade Runner does, uh, but I think it's uh, it makes number one uh, really for artistic reasons. Uh, just it's just a beautiful thing to behold, uh, Blade Runner. But uh, um, the movie, and you might find this a little inter- a little strange, but the one the movie that I, I I'm going to go with is Gattaca. Okay, and Gattaca. That's and it's not, not a, a perfect choice. movie. Sure. It's not a perfect movie. Uh, there's some uh-huh. problems with it. It's uh, it's kind of a strange combination of a sanitized dystopian future, which I think isn't you know the future is not going to be that sanitary, and it's not going to be that dystopian either. But it raises some it raises uh, a, a issue that I think is going to be the primary issue for the coming century, and that is. How you know what will uh, be the fate of normal humans in a world where there are beings that ha- that are superior both mentally and physically? And Gattaca suggests that it's not going to be an easy transition for normal humans. In Gattaca, the world kind of belongs to those people, and people who have not had that kind of modification made are sort of outsiders, or they're a, a lower class. I mean, it's like a real class system is set in. That's right, and. Uh, and it's you know um, basically uh, the only job that a normal human is thought to be good enough for is you know uh, just very menial labor types of things. And, uh, and if you have a dream to do to do a different kind of work, other, something other than that, then uh, you know you basically have to pass yourself off in some way as one of these super beings. And uh, it's, it's a good story. I enjoyed it. Again, I don't think it's it's a perfect movie, but I, I, as far as 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 one that raises the issues that, that I think about probably a lot uh, when I'm uh, writing at the speculus, that's a that's a big one. It absolutely does raise those issues, and uh, you know the the dramatic uh, tension in the movie is around someone who's not part of that class struggling uh, to to be a meaningful part of the world. Anyway, obviously, we hope for a future where. Uh, people will will be free to improve themselves, and and there won't be these kinds of class limits. Where if if someone if if someone has not, uh, you know, won the genetic lottery, there, there would be other there would be other means of doing it. But as far as as far as raising those issues, and also just being a really, uh, I think, compelling movie, I think I think Gattaca is a great choice. Now my What'd you choice, choose? yeah, um, this is this is going to be weird because I I could not decide. I I ended up almost completely punting. On movie or TV show because I was thinking, well, Star Trek or uh, you know, um, yeah, Blade Runner was actually in in the running, as was um, uh, The Matrix, as a matter of fact. But I've ended on one that's going to sound like I've lost it. Okay, I think the movie that is most influential to me as a speculist is Field of Dreams. Uh, okay, explain why. 
I, I love that movie. Too. I, I love that movie, but I, I don't see. I don't see it. What, what, what do you see there? I never made a speculous connection with it until the most recent time I watched it. Uh, they were showing it on TBS. It was right before the beginning of baseball season. They were showing all these baseball movies, and Fields of Dreams came on, and I watched it through. And it's always um, uh, always been a very uh, moving picture. Anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a story that really gets you. You know, if 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 you're sentimental at all, and you like well, baseball. if you if you don't cry at the end when uh, he plays when he uh, when he asks his dad, do you want to throw you know you you want to play catch? I mean, there's something wrong with you. I mean, if, really, if that doesn't get you. Yeah, yeah then and, and, you got you got no heart at all. And the question that occurred to me the most recent time I was watching it was one that my dad had asked after he and I had watched it together the first time. Was he said, well, what's going on here in this movie? I mean. Is it like a Twilight Zone episode? How is all this happening? And I started thinking, yeah, how is all this happening? And, uh, of course, it, there's no religious uh, or spiritual explanation given for how all this is happening. Um, and for those who have never seen the movie, what's happening is that um, uh, people are basically coming back from the dead and getting to play baseball again. Who, uh, who, uh, It's one of those movies you can't explain it and make it sound anything other than like completely nuts. But it's this great story. Fortunately, everybody's seen it, yeah. Yeah, everybody's seen it. Great story about a guy builds builds a baseball field, and players who uh, lost the ability to play, who never quite made it, who never really had their chance or had their chance taken away from them, get to come back and play baseball again. Um, and I started thinking about the literary genre that that uh, that the book occupied, and of course that is magical realism. And I started thinking about our favorite Arthur C. Clarke quote, which is that uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And though I don't think that Field of Dreams is a story about a post-singularity reality, I think that it shows the kind of transcendent things that could could happen past past the singularity. We talk about you know things that shatter our categories and that uh, that that would seem to be uh, beyond you know human ability or, or uh, into the you know almost magical or miraculous or divine. I think those kinds of things, those kinds of things, you go. Well, it would be great if that could happen, but there's no way it could happen. But I think things that we say that about, things that we say, well, it would be great if it could happen, but there's no way it could happen, those are the very things that might very well happen in a post-singularity world. So to me, Field of Dreams is a good picture of some of the stuff that might be possible, in a way, in a post-singularity world. Yeah, it could just be a failure of our imagination uh, to, under, you know, to to know how, how something like that might be possible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, well, it appears to be it's time travel, or you know, are they souls? Are they simulations? I mean, it, once you start thinking about it, there, you know, if if you try to give explanations for what's happening in Field of Dreams, there's there's just none offered up. Uh, I love I love that uh, line at the end uh, where uh, one of the players, uh, it might have been his dad. Uh, I, I forget which of the players asked, uh, "Is this heaven?" <laughs> he says, uh, "No, it, it, it's Iowa." It's I could have sworn it was yeah. heaven. I could have sworn yeah. it was heaven. Um, I, I thought for a while that Iowa should adopt that as a uh, as their state motto. I could have sworn it was I, I believe they, they have had tourist campaigns built around that line, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> it wasn't completely lost on them. In fact, I believe that baseball field is still a place you can go look at. That to awesome. a certain extent, what, what is shown happening at the end of the movie really happened in real life. But we'll move on because we've got several of these to hit. And, uh, Michael, anything in the chat room, or do you want to share your yeah, favorite let me, movie or TV show? Let me summarize quickly. Um uh, it seems like everyone's focused on movies and not so much TV, although the obvious Star Trek question is, well, do you mean movie or TV? And if you mean ah. TV, which version? So let me just say Star Trek gets mentioned. For movies, uh, mentioned in the chat room, you have uh, two that I was a little surprised by, more surprised than Field of Dreams, actually, and they are Network and Soylent huh. Green. Wow, okay. Yeah. And then uh, also referenced or mentioned uh, Blade Runner and 2001. On my own list, I would say that as a visual cinematic experience, Blade Runner, um, because it was the first, I think it was the first thing I saw where visually I just came out of the movie going, okay, what the heck was going on? And, okay, they have flying cars. They have all this other stuff. It's raining all the time. It's this, it's that. I mean, there's a scene in Back to the Future where they, you know, he knows exactly when the rain's going to start and exactly when it's going to stop, and that was cool too. But I, for me, I think that was after the Blade Runner, Blade Runner moment. Um, right. Although, for, as a story, 2001: Space Odyssey, I thought was uh, 
was more, you know, mind-boggling in the sense of, you know, Blade Runner, okay, you've got replicants and you've got Blade Runners and who's who, and you got the little guy with the origami deal, and it was cool, but conceptually I thought 2001 was bigger. Since y'all mentioned Soul and Green, I've got, I, I'm sorry, I've got to play this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, do it. Please. you got to tell them, Soul and Green is people! <laughs> a little shout out to whoever picks Soylent Green as their as the most influential movie. We 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 love getting in a, a good Charlton Heston quote anytime we can, anyhow. So, ah, beautiful. All right, let's move on. Uh, we've got a lot of these to cover. And uh, Michael, for future reference, it's one. Okay, you slipped two in on us. Don't try that again, pal. That's not going to cut it. Okay. I was summarizing the chat. Oh, oh, I thought I thought when you got to uh, Blade Runner in 2001, you were given your own. Name. Yeah, okay, I did. You're right. <laughs> but I didn't well, go with the show. I just stuck with. Uh, I but 2001 is a great choice, by the way. That's, that, that is was, a good choice. Uh, singularity before they were even talking about the singularity. That's what 2001 is dealing with. So uh, yeah, because Arthur C. Clarke was talking about the singularity before anybody else because he was using that that phrase about a sufficiently advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic. Absolutely. You know, he was. He was all over it. Okay, let's let's move on to uh, fiction or novel. I guess is probably the uh, correct way of putting that. Uh, I'll start this time, and I, I wanted to say the uh, co- collected works of Greg Egan, and I wanted to list them all as one book and, and try to get away with it that way. But I I decided no, I have to narrow it down even further than that. So I'm going to say Permutation City by Greg Egan. Um, if you if you've not read any of his books um, and you need to start somewhere, start with Permutation City. They're all great. Um, they, they they all bend your brain in a significant way, uh, but but Permutation City just is just wacky. Okay, it uh, it, it deals with a lot of the issues that we've talked about on this program uh, about um, uh, copying consciousness and um, you know the nature of identity. Actually, it gets into the nature of time. It gets into uh, the, the the big question as to whether a sufficiently advanced uh, simulation is in any way actually different from the original thing itself. Um, it, it, it poses this question about whether uh, an algorithm is all you really need to, to create a universe, and maybe that algorithm doesn't even need to be running on anything necessarily. It's just a, it's a mind-bending, mind-blowing book. I, you, you notice I'm not even talking about the plot. Um, I don't remember the plot. What I remember is all of these ideas that, uh, that that jump out of the book, and uh, that would be that would be my recommendation. Well, uh, that's interesting because my uh, my book is exactly the same. It, it's not that the plot really uh, stuck with me, uh, but one of the ideas that uh, comes out in the book uh, has is is like seared. You know, um, I, you know, I'm thinking of singularity aware novels. Uh, Rainbow's End is a great one that's come out recently of an Arvenge. Werner Vinge? Werner Vinge. Yep. I'm going to go. Okay. Right, no, I'm sorry. It's Werner Vinge. It's Werner Vinge. Yeah. I believe that's right. Um, anyway, Rainbow, Rainbow's End came out, and, of course, he is the guy that uh, invented the term singularity to describe um, what, you know, the technological singularity. He's the one who came right. up with it. And so, of course, his, his uh, book should be uh, Singularity Aware. Um and uh, Rainbow's End is uh, about that period of time just prior to the singularity, uh, and, and it's a good book. Uh, but um, and, I, and I'm, all, I'm I think also of Crystal Rain, uh, our, our friend Tobias Buckow. Um, uh, that book dealt with a civilization that uh, had been transplanted by a post-singularity uh, civilization onto a planet, and they basically had regressed somehow. And they had a, a pre-singularity civilization in on this planet far away from Earth. Right. And um, and I thought it was that, I thought that was a neat device by which to deal with singularity issues without having to write post-singularity characters, which is next to impossible uh, to do uh, for for a novelist. But uh, well, that's a good point. I mean, to, to write it for us to read, it's still going to have to have something recognizable, something that we can get our heads around if, if, if we're going to make any sense of the story at all. That's right. That's right. But the one that wins it for me is Fire Upon the Deep, which is also a Werner, a Werner Vinge novel. And in that book, I don't, the plot escapes me, but he, in, he invented an alien wolf pack race. And the individuals are as primitive as like 
wolves on this planet, but you put them together and they form a hive mind consciousness. And the individuals that make up the, the pack, uh, you know, they... They uh, they call them they don't they don't call themselves individuals. They uh, when they get together they're they're a single individual and they might have the name Fang Three Toe Claw where you know one wolf is Fang one is Three Toe one's Claw but they they go together as one mind when and uh, I mean it was so well done that uh, I mean it's just an absolutely incredible uh, creation uh, and uh, and he did it. Uh, uh, he did it in that book, and, uh, and it won all kinds of awards that year too. So, it's a it's a well thought of book. I, I would recommend a fire upon the deep. Yeah, you hear about that one all the time. I think that's an excellent choice. So uh, the answers from us so far are Permutation City and Fire Upon the Deep. By the way, Stephen, it seemed like you went through quite a few there too. So uh, yeah, I did. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I had to, I had to work through some to, to get to my one choice. I had one choice though. It's a it's a 60 minute program. Okay, what what do we got in the chat room there? Uh, uh, in, the, in the chat room, we've got uh, Neuromancer, yeah, uh, which I have to confess I haven't read. It's a uh, I, I've read I, I think I've I've gotten the Cliff Nerds version by Osmosis, but I've never read it. It's a great novel. And and Dostoevsky's The Idiot, which uh, Har- points to Harvey. I think that's a hell of a choice. That is an excellent choice. That and that that is, is, a, uh, that is a book that will bend your brain in a lot of different ways too. Absolutely. Yeah, Neuro, Neuromancer uh, invented a whole subgenre of science fiction. It was the first, I believe, cyberpunk novel. It's accepted as the first, I believe, and a uh, really good book. Whereas Dusty Esky so invented the, uh, modern fiction, pretty much. So yeah. There you go, and then. Uh, uh, on my own list, I don't think I was thinking quite as uh, as, as deeply as Harvey, but um, I, 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 I'm going to name one, although I picked multiple examples, but I'll just say Tom Sawyer. Um, and my thinking is this, that, I mean, I read it early, and it had a huge impact on me, but as a, as a speculist, the impact was that in, in reading novels, fiction, uh, primarily 19th century or even earlier stuff, although Tom Sawyer was the first and probably the most powerful thing I read as a kid that was older, um, you just see how different things were then and now, and you start to draw that contrast, and it sort of you know begs the question, well, if that was Tom Sawyer's life in that era, and here's my life in the latter part of the 60s or early 70s, you know, what's, what's 100 years hence going to be? Good point, yeah. Absolutely, that's, that's an excellent point. Yeah, and uh, Tom Sawyer, they're taking their log rafts made out of logs tied together down the Mississippi River and uh, you know I, I mean think that was primarily the Huck Finn novel yeah oh yeah, but, yeah they, do, I mean, it's, they do get some rap time in and Tom you Sawyer do you get okay. the uh, you get the the lifestyle you get a sense of what's going on in the community you get a sense of you know obviously there's no cars but there's uh, you know and there's no electricity there's no indoor plumbing, and you know stuff. Stuff a ten-year-old can easily go. Yeah, I have all this stuff. He didn't have all that. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I think it's great that we got a uh, uh, a Samuel Clemens and a and a Dostoevsky novel in our uh, chat room contributions. That's uh, speaks well, well I'm for literary, to one, uh, so. It speaks well for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, what a bright bunch. Yeah. Uh, listening to our program. Hey, and speaking of our program, this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're working through the speculist essentials. If you'd like to chat with us about it, uh, join the chat in the chat room or give us a call, 347-215-8972. Okay, let's move quickly on to nonfiction book. And, Stephen, I'll let you uh, start. I'm afraid we're probably going to have the same one for this, uh, okay. Phil. Um, the Singularity is Near. Uh, not going to have the same one. Okay, good, good. Um, before and 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 before that book was published, I would have had to have said the age of spiritual machines, uh, which in many ways was uh, uh, very very similar to uh, uh, to Kurzweil's follow up. Um, when it comes to explaining why the world is developing exponentially, Kurzweil is the man, and uh, yes. and those two books, uh, the age of spiritual machines, and then the singularity is near. Um, I mean that's it. I mean that's uh, there, there's more ideas in that in the singularity is near than uh, than you'll find in in, in ten other books. And uh, yeah, if you don't have a copy of that, drop everything and go get it. 
after the show. You know, really, <laughs> if, if you're going to say uh, something is essential, if you want to understand the singularity, that's the book you have to read. That is yeah. the one that will get you there, I think. That's, that's, um, and so from that standpoint, I would agree with you. However, I went a different way. Okay. And um, although it, both of the books you named, uh, in your naming of two books, um, were, <laughs> were, uh, were very influential, um, I think there, there's something about the book that I chose that made uh, all of this, that, that made me a part of it. Um, I, I can read The Age of Spiritual Machines or The Singularity is Near and be blown away by it, but I read a book called It's Getting Better All the Time, 100 Greatest Trends of the Last 100 Years by Stephen Moore and Julian L. Simon. And this book put me into the middle of a world where things aren't happening the way people say they're happening, or the way we've always been led to believe that they're happening. And it's nothing more than a collection of statistics. And it is amazing to read through this book. It's a few years old now, and I hope they'll do a new version of it here in the next few years. But it's, it's basically just a one-page synopsis of a particular area accompanied by a line graph showing how much that area has improved. So I'll just randomly pick a few here. Uh, uh, people have more leisure time. Um, entertainment, uh, modern home has every convenience, uh, dental care, getting enough to eat, uh, eradicating killer diseases. And for dozens, let me see actually how many of these categories they list. I think maybe they do 100 of them all together. Oh, it says 100. That's right, 100 reasons. For 100 different categories, they show how life has actually improved dramatically over the last in some cases, a couple of decades, in some cases, a century, in some cases, a couple of centuries. And it really opened my eyes to how powerful the things that they call the uh, law of accelerating returns or that we, we refer to maybe as the human imperative uh, on the speculist in our manifesto, uh, how those really are driving the world that we live in and, and how different our world is, uh, kind of in the Tom Sawyer vein there, from, from how it used to be and how different it works from the way most of us think it works because there is this huge expectation that things are bad or this huge understanding that things are bad and this huge expectation that things are going to get worse. And in fact, when you start looking at the data, you see something completely different. And so I highly recommend that book. It's called It's Getting Better All the Time. And uh, I, by the way, I can't I believe I've not read uh, the book that's the most influential to you, Phil. Um, I've, I've got to go read that immediately. Well, see, that's why it's important for us to have these conversations. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> we can learn from each other. Um, so what do we got in the chat room there, Michael? Uh, well, we've got um, World Religions by Houston Smith, which at the risk of crediting Harvey with more than one nonfiction, builds on a thread where he was talking about Joseph Campbell and the, the hero or archetypic hero stuff. Um, okay. And for nonfiction, uh, oh, Age of Spiritual Machines. I'm going to give that one to Matt. I'm not going to uh, read down the rest of his list in the spirit of sticking with one. And um, although my, my list of nonfiction was a toss-up, uh, I'll go with the one I read first, because um, if they really are tied, this one was first in time. And it's, um, it's The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Aha. Uh -huh. That's that's interesting. I like that choice. I, it's a great book. Uh, I, I, did they say why uh, that one? Why uh, that particular book? I, I choose that uh, from the perspective of how it informs me as a speculist in particular, um, oh, your because okay. it, it's the, it's sort of the precursor to guns, germs, and steel in the sense that it's the first real large, and I, I hesitate to say comprehensive, I know, I, I'm sure he was trying to be as comprehensive as he could be, um, to describe how you organize uh, an economy, how you organize human society and um, as an economy. And that, the extension of that, whether you, you, you believe in that or you want to you know, veer off into other things or whatever, he asked all, all the pertinent questions and he sort of defined the field in a way that had never been done. Right. Right. And in that book, you get the concept of the invisible hand, which with the law of yes. accelerating returns and, and some of these other ideas we talk about, mass compression, the human imperative, is one of these great forward-moving uh, – I think these are all restatements of some 
you know, fundamental principle of improvement. And, and it, he, he captures that uh, very succinctly in that idea of this people acting in their own interest, you know, somehow being guided by this uh, invisible hand, creating the kinds of improvements that you see in a book like It's Getting Better All the Time, or in the many charts that you see listed in uh, The Singularity is Near. So there's a, I think there's a real... Uh, Connection between a lot of these, a lot of these different ideas. Well, the, well I, I got to mention that. Hand, I'm sorry. Go the, ahead. The invisible hand concept came back in um, in Kevin Kelly's book Wired, and he defines it as emergence, it were or emergent activity, where you know individual entities doing their own thing, a, a meta behavior emerges, and that emergent behavior is sort of the unexpected result or unpredictable result, but it's it's powerful and real all the same. And of course, he was talking about the internet and uh, connecting the world, but it's the same idea. It's this idea that as individual actors, in the case of Wealth of Nations people, um, or by extension countries, do what they do, and collectively, something else emerges. Right. I have to mention uh, what Matt Doing said here. Uh, he, he mentioned Eliezer Yudowsky's Staring into the Singularity. Uh, in his, his book, Staring into the Singularity, left him slack-jawed for about an hour. Hmm. Um, okay, yeah, that's a, that's a big one, too. Absolutely, very influential uh, reading. And, of course, you can grab that one online, I believe. We can, uh, we can link to that. Um, oh, and I was just going to draw it all home by saying, uh, and, and when we follow the invisible hand or uh, act on the... Uh, human imperative. Maybe we're uh, also following that hero's journey that Joseph Campbell talked about. Things. See, I'm knitting them all together here, making them all <laughs> Okay, uh, where does that get us? What's, what's next? Uh, website. Website. Website, okay. Uh, who went first last time? Stephen, I think you did. Uh, so actually, you went, went, I think you went first last, uh, Phil. So okay, I, so you're up. Okay, I'm up. Um, all right. Well, I can't pick, I can't pick the speculist. Although I got to say that uh, when it comes to learning stuff, I mean, I, you know, going to the speculist, reading not only uh, you know uh, yours, Phil, but uh, other contributors uh, that contributed to speculist, as well as uh, I mean, you can learn from the comments. I mean, uh, we have some we have some sharp readers who leave these leave comments uh, with often with links and. And so it's a learning experience just to uh, be involved at the speculist. Absolutely. But I can't, I can't, uh, I can't list the speculist. I think that would okay, be a little so, too self-serving. So what, okay. What do you got? So I, here, I, here I go. Uh, Instapundit. Aha! Um, uh-huh. Interesting choice. Okay. Yeah, and it's not a you know not necessarily a, a futurist or singularity singularity centric site. Uh, but Glenn Reynolds is definitely singularity aware, and uh, I like his whole army of David's philosophy. He's sort of a libertarian. Some people call him a right winger, but he says no. I'm center of the, I'm, I'm middle of the road, and uh, I, I agree that he is. He's not really a conservative, and uh, it just comes from being, uh, you know, uh, 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 wanting to. Uh, exercise the power uh, that these technology as an individual that these technologies allow. And, and and not having the government so much, uh, you know, dictating from on high what it is that we're allowed to do, and uh, so that's I think that's behind, his, you know, his, that's his philosophy, and uh, and, so, and and you could do a lot worse uh, if if you want to be kind of a student for life, you could do a lot worse than to uh, you know log on every day and read just you know and, and take all his links and just go through them every day. I mean, you you learn about everything because. Uh, the man has extraordinary intellectual curiosity. Everything's interesting to him, and there, and and because it's interesting to him, it becomes interesting to you if you read enough. So, absolutely, uh, he takes you to good. all kinds of places, and, and and all across the political spectrum. I mean, he he makes his own views clear, but he takes you to places that uh, are, are not his views at all, which is, uh, I think, one of the. One it's of the unusual for a blogger, like isn't it? I mean, usually uh, a lot of blogging is an echo chamber kind of thing where you don't. You don't uh, you don't get exposed to other ideas. Not not at the, not at Instapundit. So, yeah, he, he's he's all over the place. I think that's a great choice. Well, um, my choice. I, I went through the list and I scratched my head and I realized that uh, I have to pick the speculist. And um, uh, you're right. It sounds very self-serving to to, to choose the speculist, but I, it's not because of reading it. It's because of writing it that it's been the most influential for me as a. Uh, you learn by a, teaching, a, right? It's. A, a, 
Yeah, you know, just, yeah, exactly. Trying to pursue these ideas, I've had to, I've had to own them. I've had to look things up. I've had to understand things. I've had to develop my ideas by writing them down. And so I think that, uh, in that sense, our blog has been the one that, that has really pushed pushed me along the farthest. Although, uh, that's also a good way of copping out and not picking anybody else uh, anybody else's site as uh, as the most important one. So I I feel like I'm saved myself from playing favorites on that one. What do we got on the uh, chat room, Michael? Uh, the chat room, a couple of good mentions here. Um, Yudkowski.net, which yep. is, uh, I, I, I have to say, a mind-twisting uh, experience. It's not the one I, I selected, but I, I can see where Matt came up with that one. And uh, also accelerationwatch.org, uh, which I would also agree with is a good one. Uh, that that one would have been right uh, near the top of my list too. Uh, and yourself? Um, okay, I went a slightly different direction here, um, and I was thinking about my the sort of formative perspective on the web or on the internet in general. And the first website that really just got me thinking hard about where the web would go and what it would be was Yahoo. And um, yeah, like everybody else, I think I, I've morphed over to using Google for most of the, most of the search I do. But the first website that just really became a, a daily part of my life and got me to a point where when I didn't have access to it, it changed the way I functioned uh, was Yahoo. And it forced me to think about, man, what's this, what, what, what's going to be? What, what's coming? It was a transformative, uh, uh, not event, but presence uh, on the internet uh, everything changed after yahoo came along and started doing what it did i think the world has not been the same since then i think that's a i think that's a great choice this is fast forward radio on the blog talk radio network we're rounding out our discussion of the speculist essentials if you'd like to join us join the chat in our chat room or give us a call at 347-215-8972 okay, i noticed uh, matt doing mentioned techno event horizon which is a de- defunct blog that was written by micah glasser I actually, try, I actually tried to lure him over to be a, a blogger for the Speculist, and uh, I think he—I don't know—he he, he must have burned himself out or something because he. I the money seen was right. not right. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. You can't do it for the money. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. We we weren't able to match. Uh, I think maybe what some others were offering, probably. But uh, <laughs> that's it's too bad he's not doing that because that was a that was a great uh, a great site to follow. Mike has got some really interesting ideas. Okay, we're down to the last two categories, and that gives us uh, event and person. An event, um, I, I meant this broadly. It could be any one thing that occurred. Like I just described, Yahoo was sort of an event when, when it showed up. So, so the event can be anything. But um, my event, uh, transformative event, was actually at a what's called an event. I was at the Foresight Vision Weekend in 2003, and that was uh, the... Uh, Foresight Nanotech Institute annual get-together of the senior associates. I had joined, become a senior associate, went to that meeting, and met a lot of the people that I'm in regular touch with now who we've had as guests on the program um, who have influenced my thinking in in a lot of ways. I mean, we had Christine Peterson on just, uh, was that, a couple of weeks ago. She she was probably, uh, in some ways, instrumental in in making this event occur and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not talking about the vision weekend but just the fact that uh, that uh, that I had this kind of eye-opening experience I you know I knew that uh, that there were people interested in these subjects but I had never been uh, with a group of people who got together and just talked about these things talked about how nanotechnology was going to impact the world talked about how artificial intelligence was was going to change our world talked about the singularity and uh, I really started doing the speculist in a serious way right after that right after that so uh, th- there's sort of a thread here the speculist is a big website I would say that event that really got me serious about doing it was uh, w- w- was my number one event Steve. that's interesting that's interesting I uh, when you said event I, uh, I I took it in a different way I, I took it as a historical event uh, but if we're talking about events in our own lives I would say maybe uh, uh, the Rocky Mountain Blogger Convention that time, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, in part because that was where uh, that was, we had the germ of the idea for this fast forward radio, and as well as uh, solidified uh, just you know, uh, I guess my involvement with the speculist. But um, uh, as far as historical events, what I went with was Apollo moon landing. Uh, 
Okay. And, uh, you know, landing a man on the moon, uh, it's a prime example of engineers as heroes. They took a problem, a huge problem. They worked it step by step um, and uh, until they got a solution. And it's, it's this sort of thing, taking something that looks insurmountable and, and breaking it up into uh, manageable pieces and working it until, you, you're, uh, until the whole project is a success, Doing something on that that large of a scale, it allows me to believe that maybe something like Aubrey de Grey's sin strategy could work. Um, you know, also look, you know, uh, aging looks like an insurmountable problem, but you divide it up into lesser problems and you just work it. And uh, yep. that's that's what that's all about. So yeah, I'd have to say Apollo moon landing. Yeah, the the, the engineer as hero. Yeah, I, I I think that's great. It's it's the archetype for things happening now and for things to come as well. Michael, what do we got in the chat room? Uh, in the chat, um, well, I'll be I'll be discreet here, but people referencing life experiences, whether it was a time period in their life when they were very young or a specific event in their life that I, I requested video and further detail, none were provided, but I'll just leave yeah, it we that. Can, you know, having said a specific event, I think we get the gist. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. Those can be transformative. Uh, specific too, first absolutely. time of that event. <laughs> yes, um, yes. But uh, I'm going to agree with Stephen that Apollo 11 in, in July of 69, uh, uh, mostly because it was first in time in, in terms of events, I could come up with other events, but... Uh, nothing, nothing compares to that. Although I will say that having, as an adult now, looked back on what was going on with Apollo and what was going on with the space program, um, most of the missions would be equally interesting, but the one that was the focal point was we're going to put people on the moon and we're going to bring them back. Um, yes. It's just huge. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that takes us to our final category, the number one person who has most influenced us in shaping our speculist view of the world, shaping our unusual view toward the future. And I believe, Stephen, it's your turn to go first. Okay. Um, many possibilities. Uh, you know, I mean, Drexler, Kurzweil, Aubrey de Grey. Um, you could go with Richard uh, Feynman. Uh, he yep. said in 1959 there was, there's room at the bottom. Um, I guess... Uh, I'm probably going to have to go with Aubrey de Grey um, as as the person who's had the most influence on me. Number one, because um, I, mean, I find his ideas just fascinating. Uh, this, this, you know, uh, his his book uh, is 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 awesome, um, and uh, I recommend it to anybody. Uh, it, it, and the whole idea, the audacity of it, uh, is just you know. And 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 the fact that you know we actually could do this, I mean, it, it just it blows me away. And uh, you talk about something that will change the world if he's even uh, if he's even partly right, and uh, we can uh, uh, and we can grant ourselves another decade or two. Um, if he if he's even right a hundred years from now and it doesn't even apply to us, it's still yeah. so huge. Yeah. It's so huge that you know. I mean, they'll they'll date history from before and after life extension. Uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's how big of a deal it is. And so, yeah, I, I'd have to say Aubrey de Grey, and, uh, and, and I have to add to that, he's, you know, we've, we've had personal conversations with him. Uh, and yeah. so I, for that reason, I mean, he's had a lot of influence on me. So, Good choice. I, definitely he was, he was on my short list, and uh, since I've been scrupulous about not uh, going through lists as I as I did this, I now here in the final category, I'm going to mention two names. Okay, I'm going to give my runner-up, and then I'm going to give my uh, actual uh, most influential person. My runner-up would have to be you, Stephen, my my co-host, co-blogger, and co-futurist, because uh, having you involved in the speculus has kept the speculus going, and uh, having you on Fast Forward Radio has kept me doing this. So, uh, just your your influence in my life as a as a speculist has been. Tremendous, and I want to thank you for that. Actually. Well, I'm very honored. Thank you, Bill. And Leave my number one person. <laughs> before okay. I get verklempt here, you know. <laughs> before, before, we, before we get all verklempt. Um, my, num- my, my number one person is got to be John Smart. Um, I met John at the aforementioned Foresight Vision Weekend in 2003, 
And uh, one of the first interviews I ever did on The Speculist was with him. And he's just been a tremendous influence in my thinking. He recommended that I read It's Getting Better All the Time. And, of course, Better All the Time, you know, I took that that language and made that a, a regular feature on the on the speculist um john's view of um uh, uh accelerating change uh messed compression his uh his idea of what what he describes as the ultimate destiny of the human species <clears throat> excuse me uh we talked about uh we talked about accelerationwatch.org Anyone who hasn't spent some time on that site, go to that site and read what John has to say. Um, you know, Kurzweil uh, talks about these things. Uh, Yudkowsky talks about these things. But John Smart has a, a spin on the future. He has an, an outlook on how this is all coming together and, and an exhaustive body of knowledge that he draws from in, in, in putting together his conclusions that I think uh, just makes him one of the most important people living today, actually. And uh, we're hoping one day that he will agree to be on Fast Forward Radio. He's very busy teaching right now, so uh, we haven't been able to line him up. But I'm hoping uh, if, if he's listening to this at some point that, uh, John, we'd love to have you on Fast Forward Radio because you are my number one human influence as a speculist. Okay, Michael, what do we got? Uh, let's see, in the blog we have Asimov, which I have to presume is Isaac, Oh, of and course, um, yeah. Roddenberry, which I would presume is Gene, and yeah, uh, not somebody else, and and a mention of Phil, uh, right along with Stephen. So I think you guys are probably both getting uh, getting your props there. Well, and you're real good too, Michael. I'm sure somebody meant to mention you too. No, no, no. That's uh, that, that wasn't. That's yeah. No, I, I didn't build the speculus. I just, I just, I'm just a part of it now. I guess. Um, but here, my my choice, and this maybe requires a little bit of context. I, I grew up in suburban Chicago, and when in the winter of seventy nine eighty, um, and I think it was actually in the early part of nineteen eighty, I went to an event at the Chicago, the downtown campus of Northwestern University, and there was a physicist there from the University of Chicago, uh, Subra, Subramanian Chandreskar, and he was the first person that I ever heard describe thought experiments and then demonstrate it in a room full of people in a way that maybe didn't work on everybody, but it worked on me. And I was like, oh, I, I now get it. I, I now feel like I understand the Milky Way. I mean, this guy was a physicist and highly talented, but his the, the magic that day for me was that in having heard people talk about thought experience and having or experiments and having uh, read things where people were like, yeah, I didn't really have a way to experiment with this, but I just thought it through, and here's what I, yeah, I get the idea, but oh my God, my head exploded. I'm like, yeah, okay, we're now out in the middle of the Milky Way picturing Earth, and it, it just worked for me. So um, I'm going to name him as the, because uh, it was a personal experience, and, um, and it was also first in time for me. And somebody who really influenced your thinking. That's that's exactly the, uh, Without the, the, the kind of people that uh, that make a real difference in our lives. All right, well, that sums up, I guess, our discussion of the Speculist Essentials for this time. I think this is a list we're going to have to revisit, and we'll probably be working on, over the next few days, an expanded version of this list up uh, in, in the show notes. We'll, we'll include uh, maybe some of the runners-up and some links to some of the things we've been talking about. All right. So, Great Stephen, show. I think we've got a couple, uh, a couple of things to talk about music-wise tonight. Yeah, um, the new Coldplay album is coming out in a couple of weeks, and I, it has nothing to do really with anything we've been talking about, but I just happen to love Coldplay, and um, I thought we'd play 30 seconds of, uh, uh, of the first single that's been released. It's Viva La Vida, which, you know, um, that ought to be like a like an alternate uh, a motto for the speculist. Viva la vida uh, means live to see it, pretty much, huh? Yeah, pretty or, much. Or uh, uh, yeah, uh, long live uh, life, I guess, is what uh, yeah. it would be pretty much uh, the way that would translate. Uh, but in, uh, it's it's not exactly an uplifting song, though. But I mean, uh, at any rate, it's it's cool enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna play the first thirty seconds of it. Okay, go, let's go.
I think this well, sounds song, uplifting at the beginning, anyway. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, he used to rule the world. Now he's uh, not, not such a big shot anymore. I, I think that the song is about uh, King Louis the Sixteenth. Wow. To and uh, not a typical subject for pop music. And uh, you got to got to hand it to Coldplay. Um, uh, you know, the reason I love indie music so much is because uh, it's. You know, it's a it's not just the same old same old that you hear on top 40s you know radio, and uh, you could say the same thing about Coldplay. Um, they 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 go a little deeper with their music, and that's uh, one of the reasons I like them so well. Anyway, uh, for our for our regular music tonight, we've got Song of the Siren is the name of the band. Uh, the song is Peace Quiet. Peace and Quiet. Okay, a little follow up to the uh, rather rambunctious. Uh, program we had tonight uh we'll have a little peace and quiet from siren song and uh steven thank you very much uh great talking with you uh michael thanks to you and to all our friends in the chat room and to everyone who was listening we thank you for joining us and we look forward to being with you all again on the next fast forward radio (laughs) 